You are listening to the Next Best Picture podcast, and this is Brendan Hodges' interview with the composer for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Daniel Pemberton. My name is Miles Morales. I'm Brooklyn's one and only Spider-Man, and things are going great. Oh, yeah, you were supposed to be here. Bye. All right, whatever. Whatever? Wow. Whatever? So are you like a cow or a Dalmatian? I am the spot. It's not funny. Don't, don't do that. Miles' grades are pretty good. A in AP Physics. That's my little man. And a B in Spanish. What? Ooh, okay. Miles. Are you trying Mira, to kill me? Mira, that's what I gotta go. All right, bye. He's lying to you. And I think you know it. All right, so hi, Daniel. Thank you for being with us today. Very excited to be speaking with you. You have a score for Across the Spider-Verse that mixes rock and roll with punk rock, with hip-hop, R&B, EDM, <laughs> ambient, and even, at, at times, Italian opera. <laughs> Sometimes in the same track. What's your yes. method in, I guess, coming up with this incredibly eclectic range of sounds, but also making it not only listenable, but awesome? What's your process in making all this work together? I mean, I feel Across the Spider-Verse in some ways is a reflection of every aspect of musical culture that I've experienced in my life and tried to like shove it all into one score. (laughs) Uh, I think it's, you know, it's a film that everyone involved with it is like pushing at the boundaries of what you can do in cinema to such an extreme level that I kind of get more of a license to do that with the score. And there's so many different styles and ideas in every scene. I'm basically trying to like echo that in the music. Um, But yeah, it's really complicated to like, to try and build this world with all these disparate ideas, disparate recording styles, disparate writing styles, disparate instruments and pull them all together into something that feels coherent and actually doesn't feel like a complete mess. I would think that's the biggest risk of having so many different sounds. Cause I first saw this in a Dolby theater and it was mixed like a rock concert. The music was just incredibly loud in the best possible way. The whole theater was vibing with it. But what struck me in that kind of first viewing experience was just how much the music was constantly changing and evolving and shifting based on what's on screen, but also in just second to second within the song. And the first time you really hear that is that first fight, I think, with Vulture, where it's bouncing with with all these different sounds. So can you talk about that first early sequence and just how you honed in this sound when it's bouncing between Gwen's theme, Vulture... You've got all these different sounds coming in. Um, Miguel's theme comes in. There's all these different things just bouncing around. Yeah, I'd say, you know, if you want to like a quick deep dive into the history of film music, film music, you know, in its most traditional sense was orchestral. And the reason it's orchestral was an orchestra is an insane, like the most amazing instrument you could ever use because it's got so much power and it's got so much nimbleness. So you can turn corners incredibly quickly within an orchestra. But the downside of that is it's a sound that you've all heard a million times before. And there's so many exciting innovations in the world of 
you know, music over the last 60 years that have not really been reflected in film music in a way, in a film where the score needs to be as nimble as that. And it's been really hard because you get electronic scores and they often move about a bit, but they don't move at the speed which a film like this needs. Um, so for me, it was kind of like trying to build this orchestra up, orchestra from the ground up, this kind of new sort of orchestra that was both traditional instruments like strings, you know, brass, woodwinds, timpani, but then throwing all these new instruments in um, from record scratching to rock guitars to operatic vocals to crazy electronics. And I spent so long working out what the limitations and strengths of each of these sounds were and how that would work in a kind of orchestral setting. So it's like, every, it's like if you think of, I don't know, a flute up here, it's lovely for certain things, it's not good for other things. And you might, you know, if you want something big and heavy, you're going to go for like basses or tubers or something. You're not going to go for flute. And I'll be doing the same with some synths. I'll have like, I might have like a Gwen, twinkly Gwen sound that would be great up here. But if I want something heavy, I've got the kind of like distorted synths of 2099. And it was kind of like trying to find, I, I, I think I might be a bit boring and nerdy here. But no, this like is the, incredible. Please continue. Spread <laughs> of the orchestra, right? Is like the, is like the kind of the gold standard in a way of how you deal with sound because you start at the bottom with the like bass, you go basses, cellos, violas, violins up to there, right? And that's your kind of frequency range. And that's just on the strings. And then within that, you might have like brass that's around this area, woodwind that's like sort of up here part these other things that were all within this frequency spectrum i think with this score i've been trying to find sounds and approaches that can replicate these different elements and once you start to get those you start to pull them in to the mix and you start sort of discarding more of the traditional instruments to an extent that eventually you, you have this whole kind of crazy orchestra that's made up of just sounds you've created, whether that be like weird whistling to like distorted drum machines to, I don't know, punk guitars. And like I say, it's a very, a lot of trial and error. But once you get the template going and you get the idea going, then you can sort of make it work. Right. In which you really spotted like quite smartly was it moves incredibly fast so with all these character themes like 2099 or gwen's or miles's they've all got to be recognizable within like a second or two seconds so you have to write incredibly identifiable themes or sounds that within a second you know who that character is you can't write long sort of extended overarching big themes for character because you you rarely have time to do that and so it's got to be very fast and it's got to be very recognizable and it's also all got to feel very different for each world and each character so when they all interact each area each character has its identity still intact and i think that's one of the reasons some of these really blew up on tiktok because people on tiktok have no concentration span yeah <laughs> yeah so something that you can work in like four seconds is great for tiktok that's why i think Spider-Verse has blown up so much on TikTok. I think that's a strong theory. But this actually dovetails perfectly with what I wanted to ask you next. Now, I'm actually a big fan of Ridley Scott's 
the counselor i think it's kind of a really underrated <laughs> movie um yeah especially the longer cut version I, I think is just incredibly good and when cormac mccarthy you know sadly passed away recently the counselor actually got a lot of play online with people talking about the film and how unusual it was and how great it actually was. I bring this up because it strikes me in your filmography, a lot of the movies you've done are very dialogue heavy. It's kind of wall to wall chatter, dialogue, et cetera, whether it's Steve Jobs as well. And across the Spider-Verse is nonstop dialogue. Even the action sequences is just people talking at each other constantly. So you mentioned this word nimble for how you have to navigate the theming. No theme can be too long. How do you compose a score so the music works with the dialogue rather than against it? Because I think that's something so many film scores get wrong today. Well, I mean, on this, you know, first of all, thanks for the counselor, love. Very, <laughs> I think... Ridley, every time I see Ridley, he's I saw Ridley recently, like on the I I happened to just visit the set of Gladiator 2 completely randomly because I was in the area. Yeah. And he was on such good form. And but also he was just like he started chatting about the council. Love he's like he loves that movie. He was chatting yeah. about it in his the big New Yorker article just come out. And he's like, <laughs> yeah. and you remember when he put Blade Runner out, everyone thought that movie was shit. Yeah. And so he's I think he doesn't care about critical. You know, if he likes the movie, that's important to him, you know, because yep. if, you know, if you've lived through Blade Runner, you just like, well, like everyone else's opinion. The only one that counts is mine. So it's nice when people recognize the counselor. But yeah, with this movie, I think there's so much interaction and collaboration between the filmmakers and me um, all through the process. Like we're working next to, literally next to each other during a big part of this process. I was working at a covered in Sony's office for a great deal of this film. And, you know, I'm writing around the dialogue. I'm trying to hit as many things as possible. I'm trying to give stuff like super identity. You know, we'd even do things like, I don't know if you remember the bit on the train chase where he goes, my name is Miles Morales and he thwacks him, right? Yep. I would have debates with them about, look, if we move this dialogue a tiny bit to the right or left or whatever, a bit later, we'll get the full impact of this chord, which is really going to connect with the audience. And then we can get the dialogue and it's still going to work and it's going to feel more emotional and they're great. And then they moved it. And so it's such a collaborative process with everyone on board on this project. I think that's one of the things that helps. They'll be like, we need this here. I'll be like, okay, I'll try and write around it. Or I'll be like, give me this moment. Cause this moment's really, really land with the audience. But yeah, for some reason I do do a lot of, chatty films i think it's because i do a lot of work with sorkin yeah and I, what sure very good at yeah is dialogue you've watched them in unforgettable adventures love affairs and tragedies now it's time to hear their own remarkable stories from the makers of death of a rock star and death of a sports star this is death Ready? of a film star and Starring Heath Ledger, Marilyn Monroe, Chadwick Boseman, Robin Williams, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Lee. Search for Death of a Film Star in your podcast app. You've seen them tell stories. Now it's time to tell theirs.
very ornate, constant dialogue, but the music often feels like it's of a piece with the dialogue. And again, that's just very unusual. And part of this, we've talked about how the score for Across the Spider-Verse is very maximalist. There's so many sounds always going on, but a big departure in this movie, obviously, is that Gwen is almost also a main character. She's almost co-lead. She opens the movie with this prologue, etc. So how did you go about sculpting a score that has two strong personalities running through the whole film by maybe continuing old themes, developing new ones, branching off in different directions, things like that? Well, I think with with Gwen, you know, we've got Gwen and Miles who are like, you know, kind of the main leads, but you've also got 2099, you've got punk, you've got all these different worlds and all these universes, and they've got very distinct approaches from an art point of view. And they've also got very distinctive personalities. And I'm trying to like channel each of those worlds and each of those personalities through the score. So it's kind of like this maximalist is a very good way of looking at the score because this is not really one film score. There's about six film scores that are all like shoved together and shaken up in a jar. So with Gwen, for instance, I was really taken by the the world they created for her, like the, the watercolors, the way the color moved, had a very big impact on how I wanted that score to feel. I wanted it to feel uh, quite dreamlike and have a sort of soft color to it. And right. the same way the palette of her university. Almost impressionistic colors. It literally is, you know, melting on screen behind her, etc. Yeah, so that, if you listen to the sort of stuff in that, it's very sort of drippy in a way. There's lots of delay, reverb. But you're also playing with that. Then you're also trying to capture an element of her kind of band aspect with the drums, the sort of synthy, uh, slightly poppy indie sound. And you're pulling that into her. Whereas you look at 2099's world, it's very abrasive and technological and muscular. And I think by creating very different worlds, very different sonic worlds, and basically very different scores for each character and each universe, it's a way you can start to bring them together as the film progresses and you take the audience on that journey because they subconsciously are already recognizing sounds relate to certain characters, certain ideas. I mean, this film has so many things that connect. There are themes that represent ideas. There are sounds that represent people, places, and everything connects because I spent ages making sure all these ideas all connect all through the film and through the previous film. So you watch this in the previous film, every sonic idea in theory all links up. Right. It's So it's kind of like an orienting device for the audience to find their way through just all of this plot, all these characters, things like that. Yeah. I, like someone wrote a really nice thing on the internet, which was just like, I can listen to the album and I can re-see the entire film in my head. And mm -hmm. that's almost like the biggest compliment because I think the best film music is is music that when you hear it away from the film, it takes you instantly back into the, the moment and the experience you had when you first saw it. And I think because this is such a maximalist score where it has been fine-tuned down to the millisecond, you really can sort of re-experience it just by listening to it. Right. And I think it completely does that. Just to own up to it, I've listened to this score almost more than any other score this year. And part of it is it just puts you back in that place. You know, as soon as Gwen's theme comes on, you see those early moments 
from the movie or the 2099 stuff, etc. And I'm wondering for with Metro Boomin, that collaboration you you have going, I've always been curious, is when those songs come in, is it on the script stage? Is it a discovery being made during production? Because the songs always feel so precise, so clear, and when they're used and how they're used, it feels like a completely cohesive part of the score, but obviously it's somewhat adjacent to the score as well. So can you kind of talk about that that process? Yeah, well, you know, that's like, that's great that it feels like that because, you know, we're, we're all, like I say, everyone in this film is very collaborative. So we're all working together and the songs would come in. So, you know, there's like a great example is the beginning of the film when we first meet Gwen. I'd scored that sequence we get this song in from Metro and we're all looking at it and we're like, this is great. This is better. Let's use this. And he's hearing what I'm doing. I'm hearing what he's doing. And it's all kind of like inspiring each other in terms of the sound worlds we're creating, the textures. And I think that's why the film feels very unified across those two, two departments. That makes sense. And I think that people watching this movie don't necessarily realize how easy it would be for it to play and feel like nonsense <laughs> just because of the sheer density of information and story and what's happening. It's very difficult for a movie with this much stuff in it to feel cohesive and clear. And it, it obviously totally, totally does. One of my best friends brought his nieces and nephews to see it, who are all like a massive age range from like quite young to late teens. And all of them understood the movie. And I, I think based on what you're saying, the music does a really great job tethering the audience to a present point in the film. They're always feeling present in what's happening because of, of the music. So I'm wondering, on a kind of a broader level, what experience were you hoping people would walk away from with the movie, with the score, and everything like that? Like, what experience were you hoping people could leave the theater feeling on this epic kind of journey that you've created? Well... That is what I think about more than anything when I'm writing a film score. I literally think about what is this going to give the audience? And for me, the thing that's been so exciting about this film is I feel it has given people surprise and um, a new experience in cinema. And I, if you think about, like, I have this whole theory about cinema where the most powerful things in cinema are when they're surprised and unexpected. And there's two kinds of cinema, two kinds of scores in a way. There's a sort of approach, which is like, you know what's going to happen here. You know what this means. So this is pressing buttons you've heard before. You know, if some people are like falling in love and the violins come up and it feels like a love theme, you're like, I know what that is. They're falling in love. The music's telling me. But when it's doing something unexpected or you haven't heard before, you're like, hang on, what's going on here? So you then experience it in a different way. And it really makes you think about what's happening on screen if it's done effectively. And that's when you really, really connect with the characters and the picture and the story. And so in this project, I'm trying to do that as much as I can. And I'm trying to find moments that I think are emotionally the most important moments in the film and make those land as powerfully as possible. Like the the amount of time I would spend sometimes over three seconds of the movie, like the level of detail that has gone into like these like certain key moments that are like three seconds have to land to the highest level to give the audience that kind of punch 
And that either that emotional hit, emotional warmth, excitement. It's funny, we've just been doing these concerts. I don't even know mm-hmm. about these. We've been doing these concerts of the, the first one live. And what is insane about them is it's like it's like doing a rock gig and the audience have been like cheering at the end of cues, which is they cheer when characters turn up, but they also cheer at the end of cues, which is really weird. It's like, here's 4M37 and people go nuts at the <laughs> end of it. And I just think these films are very special and very unique. And I feel very lucky to get the chance to be part of that. And and know also that the music is making a really big difference to how people experience the film. I think that is a perfect place to end the interview. We are out of time. Thank you so much, Daniel, for your insight and wisdom on your scoring process. It's a massive achievement and I can't wait to see what happens next. Thanks. Yeah. So I thought I got a bit nerdy in that, but like, it's kind of really hard because you're trying to describe how you're building this thing. And I think the whole thing is because you're building it from the ground it's like you're sort of making the rules up as you go along. Which no, I, I think that's honestly perfect. Adjacent to all this, I often actually say, if people want to learn how movies are made, listen or read interviews with editors, with the composer, with the cinematographer, because directors and producers and sometimes writers, they're very, very rigidly media trained. So they give yeah. these very... I don't know, variations of the same three or four answers to everything. And if you really want to learn how movies are made, you need to listen to the craft, tech, and composer people because they actually like to go into the detail. And as you say, Daniel, should kind of nerd out to go nerd nerdy with it. So thank you yeah. for that. I, actually, I think that's exactly what people want to hear. Okay, good. All right. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you for the love for the council as well. Yeah, absolutely. Rock on, man. <laughs> All right. I'll see you around. Yep. All right. See you later. Yep. Bye. Hey, everyone. Thank you so much for listening to Brendan Hodges' interview with the composer for Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, Daniel Pemberton, here on the Next Best Picture podcast. Daniel Pemberton is up for your consideration for Best Original Score at this year's Academy Awards, and Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is up for your consideration in all of our eligible categories, including Best Animated Feature of the Year, Best Film Editing, Best Visual Effects, Best Sound, and Best Picture. You have been listening to the Next Best Picture Podcast. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network, and you can subscribe to us anywhere where you subscribe to podcasts. Be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think of the show. We really appreciate your feedback and your support, which you can also lend on over at Patreon. For $1 minimum a month, you'll get some exclusive podcast content from us. Thank you all so much for listening as always, and we will see you all next time.
History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.